You are listening to Neuro Podcases, a neuroscience podcast created for medical students. Good morning, my name is Josie Mayer. I'm a neurology trainee in the UK, currently working in Perth, uh, Australia at Charles Gardner Hospital. Uh, and I'm um, very pleased to be joined today by Professor Graham Hankey, who's Professor of Neurology at um, UWA, the University of Western Australia. Um, so good morning, Professor. Good morning, Josie. <laughs> um, so today we're going to talk about um, the management of uh, stroke after the initial acute management. So we've already done a podcast on the acute management, which involved thrombolysis and thrombectomy. Um, but now we're going to focus on the days and weeks after the acute presentation. So this is a case of a 59-year-old right-handed female who presents the emergency department with a 12-hour history of visual problems. She describes that she woke with visual disturbance and couldn't see when driving well and kept on bumping into things, uh, including a post with a car on the left. She recalls feeling slightly dizzy the night before and had a mild headache. This came on suddenly around 11pm and she just took herself to bed, um, but otherwise she's been very well. She's usually fit and well without any other medical problems. She reports that she had migraines during adolescence. She takes no regular medications and is a non-smoker. She has no other symptoms. Her observations show a normal oxygen saturation rate of 98% and respiratory rate is normal 15. There's a regular heart rhythm, which is sinus on the ECG recorded in the emergency department. Her blood pressure is 126 over 90 and pulses 81. And she is afebrile. A neurological examination reveals just a left homunculus hemiopia and there's no other abnormal findings. And she has a CT head scan and a CT angiogram performed in the emergency department and this shows an evolving infarct in the right PCA territory. And on the CT angiogram that she's had her aortic arch and carotid arteries and intracranial vessels all have a normal appearance. She's commenced on aspirin, she's given an initial loading dose of 300 milligrams and admitted to the ward for further investigation. And an MRI scan later confirms a right PCA territory infarct. So Professor Hankey, please can you tell us what is a stroke? Um, well a stroke's a clinical syndrome. It's the uh, sudden onset of loss of function of a particular part of the body due to loss of function of a particular part of the brain that's due to a disturbance in the blood supply to that part of the brain, either a blocked vessel, an ischemic stroke, or a burst vessel, a hemorrhagic stroke. Okay, and, and this case is talking about a, a, a blocked vessel. So what, what are the causes of blocked vessels? Um, so a blood vessel could be blocked in situ by um, Presumably in this case, it's the posterior cerebral artery by the sound of it. It could be in situ atherothrombosis, um, a plaque rupture, or it could be an in situ dissection. Uh, or more likely, it's likely to be an embolus from a more proximal source. And one just wants to think anatomically. Um, you could start right at the very bottom, like the veins in your legs. There could be a DVT that could embolize up and go through a right to left shunt like a patent foramen ovale or a pulmonary arteriovenous malformation or there could be an atrial septal aneurysm with clots in the right atrium getting through a PFO or um, the left side of the heart one would think um, could there be a problem in the left atrium or atrial appendage or the mitral valve or the left ventricle or the aortic valve or the aortic arch or the extracranial 
vertebra basilar system in this case, which supplies the posterior cerebral artery. So pathologies along that anatomical pathway, it's a bit like being a plumber who's called to your house and there's a blockage in the toilet and you've got to find it is the blockage in the toilet or is it all the, in the pipes all the way in the back garden, all the way back to the fence. So the plumber will do an endoscope and look all the way down. We've got to do something similar and look locally but also image more proximally or distally, whichever way you're thinking about it. Good. Um, so, so what investigations are important for this patient? Well, um, clinically you're thinking this is a, there's a left homonymous hemianopia here, so the right optic tract or radiation is affected. And there may be other things like memory, um, if it was posterior cerebral artery, or it could be, um, there could be other stuff like geographical disorientation or alexia, inability to read, or achromatopsia, or prosopagnosia, unable to recognize faces. So sometimes in the rush of the clinical exam in emergency, you might miss some other features that might localize the lesion, um, as well as discover their disabilities that need rehab and attention by the OT. But anyway, you've, you've localized this lesion to the right posterior hemisphere, the occipital lobe, and um, sorry, what was your question, Josie? What investigations are important? Okay, so we want to we do the CT first. Is it ischemic or hemorrhagic, or is it a non-vascular cause? Could it be something like mitochondrial encephalomyopathy, or you know, Miller syndrome that can cause posterior circulation, territory type, or occipital lobe non-vascular stroke-like syndromes? So it's um, CT ischemic or hemorrhagic, and then in in this case, you might still do a CT perfusion in emergency because um, the treatment even out to 24 hours and perhaps even longer, if there was a perfusion defect, you might still consider re-perfusion. Um, but you've talked about that in a previous podcast. And then where's the vascular lesion? So you're doing the CTA and you're seeing an occlusion, I presume in the posterior cerebral artery, beyond the branch to the thalamus, the thalamogeniculate branch, and beyond the posterior choroidal branch to the mesial temporal lobe if there's no memory disturbance or hemisensory motor dysfunction. So this is probably a a more distal posterior cerebral artery occlusion. Now, um, because there's not many vascular pathologies that affect that posterior cerebral artery out distally, it's not a common site for plaque atherosclerotic plaque formation. This is usually an embolic syndrome. Usually the embolus has flown up the vertebrobasilar system and hit the top of the basilar and then if it hasn't been large enough to block the top of the basilar it might fragment or go down one of the posterior cerebrals. So this is a very classical embolic syndrome. So one's got to look for a proximal source of embolus and therefore You've looked at this CT angiogram of the extracranial, intracranial, extracranial vertebra basilar system. You're looking at the aortic arch for atheroma or dissection, and you've got to look at the heart. I mean, we're trying to advocate now doing a CTA in emergency that actually looks at the heart as well as the aortic arch and extracranial vessels, but at the moment in our hospital we have a bit of a turf war with neuroradiologists not allowed to encroach on cardiac or chest radiology, but one day we'll be doing CTAs that are looking at the heart and the aortic arch and cerebrovascular system all in one hit in ED. So at the moment we tend to resort to echocardiography 
initially transthoracic and subsequently transesophageal. So that would be the imaging tests. Fantastic. Um, we've had a quick look at some of the investigations already that she, this patient's had, so she, her ECG showed a normal uh, sinus rhythm. She goes on to have an echocardiogram, which is completely normal, and she has a bubble study included with that, which doesn't uh, show any evidence of a PFO. And she has a, a 24-hour Holter monitor done as a routine investigation, and again, there's no evidence of atrial fibrillation. So there's no kind of obvious um, source found on the initial screen. So what, what sort of things can we do next? Yeah, so you've excluded um, most obvious causes and um, of an embolic ischemic stroke here. So again, I would just be going back to the anatomy again. Could this still be a venous thrombosis that's embolized? Um, has she got any swelling of her ankle? Should we do a um, venous ultrasound and should we do a thrombophilia screen to see if she did have a DVT? Could she have something like Factor V Leiden or prothrombin G2O12A or antithrombin 3 or uh, protein C or protein S deficiency on that side. Um, I'd also be ordering a transesophageal echo because the transthoracic echo is the probe, as you know, is on the front of the chest and that's where the left ventricle is. The left atrium is right behind because the sort of heart is lying on its side sort of thing or most of that left atrium is towards the back near the esophagus so a transthoracic echo sees the apex of the left ventricle and the left ventricle quite well but it doesn't see the atrium too well and it's also done by an ultrasonographer and there's a lot of inter-observer variation in the assessment of echoes so um, I'd be thinking could this still be something in the left atrium or the interatrial septum like a PFO that's been missed on the um, transthoracic echo and we've seen left atrial myxomas, we've seen um, PFOs, we've seen atrial septal aneurysms on, on transesophageal echoes that have been missed on transthoracic. So you definitely do a transesophageal echo here and you might also look for some blood biomarkers of clotting in the in areas of stasis like the veins or the left atrium or ventricle like looking at D-dimer and perhaps pro-BNP, um, that's natriuretic um, peptide. Um, and I'll also be doing a troponin, could she have had a silent MI? And um, may, I mean, I know the echo looked normal, but uh, could she still have had a MI? Um, she's 59, we don't have any other clues about her. Uh, and I'd be doing her antiphospholipid antibodies. Sometimes we see um, Lipman Sachs endocarditis or non-bacterial, non-bacterial um, non thrombotic endocarditis. So people who, like women like this who might have occult lupus, who have a bit of a thrombophilia predisposition and can develop antiphospholipid antibodies can get clots on their mitral or aortic valve that could go to the brain. So definitely, so look closely with the toe of the valves and for infective or non-infective vegetations or clots and uh, yeah, check the antiphospholipid antibodies. Then looking up in the vessels, um, we, we're seeing no dissection. That doesn't mean there isn't one, we're just seeing the lumen on the angiogram. There still could be a dissection, particularly with her headache. Uh, so one might have a really close look at the CT angiogram and perhaps even consider 
imaging of the vessel wall, uh, looking for blood in the wall, like with MRI, T1, sat fat saturated imaging. But you'd have to really focus on which part of the vertebral or basilar artery you're thinking is where the dissection is. Is there any point tenderness along the neck or the back of the head? And uh, could it be a vasculitis? That it'd have to be a large artery vasculitis. Um, I don't. I think that'd be unlikely. But you, she's had vasculitic screen. Could it be some weird arterial disease like Fabry's disease, alpha galactosidase A deficiency, um, or Cadacil? Unlikely as well. So she's a typical embolic stroke of undetermined source here, or cryptogenic stroke of which most cases are ESAS. And we still don't know the cause, but we haven't finished the investigations yet. Um, so she has a, a host of investigations, including a thrombophilia screen. Um, they're all um, unremarkable. The tests that she has done in the emergency department um, it just include a diabetes screen and the lipids. And she has an LDL of 2.5. Um, is that relevant at all? Um, if she had atherosclerotic disease, um, uh, as a possible cause, and she might, because the, probably the most common cause of ESAS, or embolic stroke of undetermined stores, source, is a non-stenotic atherosclerotic plaque. Because atheroma tends to be eccentric, it forms in the wall, and it tends to blow out rather than in. So sometimes the lumen can look okay, but underneath there's a big volcano, or it's like a big iceberg that's only just getting above the water. So um, she could have atherosclerosis, and this could have been a very small ruptured plaque in the aortic arch or vertebrovascular system, and the CTA is not really showing it because um, it's underneath, it's in the wall. So an LDL of 2.5 isn't really high, but the recent TST trial or treat stroke to target um, published in the New England Journal last year, randomized patients with TIA and ischemic stroke to conventional lipid lowering target of lowering the LDL to 2.5 or to more intensive lipid lowering to an LDL of 1.8 and showed a significant reduction in recurrent ischemic events of the brain and heart by more intensive LDL lowering from 2.5 median or mean to um, 1.8. And the European Heart Guidelines for coronaries is to get the LDL down to 1.4. So it's hard to know if it's relevant to the etiology here, but if you think it is atheroma, you do your best to get her LDL down to 1.8 rather than just accept 2.5. In the same way, we know that not only does every one millimole per litre reduction in LDL cholesterol from whatever it was, realize about a 20% reduction in ischemic strokes. We know that about a 10 millimeter reduction in blood pressure systolic reduces the risk of recurrent strokes by about 20 to 30%. So every millimeter counts of blood pressure, every millimole per liter of LDL cholesterol lowering counts, and also every cigarette counts. The interstroke study looked at the association between cigarettes and stroke, and so did interheart. And there's a direct linear relationship with every cigarette. The more cigarettes, so if you cut down from 20 to 10, you have that risk, and if you cut down from 10 to 5, you have the risk again. So even if people can't stop, they're just getting them down from 10 to 5 or 5 to 2 a day all helps.
That's really interesting. So that's a really important message we can give our patients, isn't it? So yeah. every every single gain on the on the LDL, on smoking, mm. on blood pressure is actually really positive towards um, improving. Yeah. And people can monitor their risk by apps like, you know, the riskometer, the stroke riskometer app. They can plug in their blood pressure and their LDL and their smoking and they can get an absolute risk that they're at and monitor their risk over time, as well as the relative risk compared to someone of the same age and sex. Um, so, so going back to this case, so she's um, she's now been discharged from um, from the hospital, and she's she's come back to the outpatient clinic, and all of her investigations have been pretty unremarkable. She's asking you, you know, should I have a should I have a prolonged monitor, you know, of, of my heart? What, you know, what would you say to that? Yeah, well, that's a very good question because we know um, from like the Embrace trial and the Crystal AF trial that people with cryptogenic ischemic strokes like this of uncertain cause and embolic about. 2% of them during a 24-hour HALT monitor are declared to have atrial fibrillation. But if we um, prolong the monitor to seven days, it's about mm, 7%. And if we prolong it to 14 days and then 20 or 30 days, it's increased up to about 15%. So the more the longer one looks, the more one does see paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. And so the main determinant is how long you look and also age is an important predictor of AF as well as um, an evidence of an atrial cardiopathy like if someone's got multifocal um, uh, ectopic atrial ectopic beats or supraventricular tachycardia on the ECG or they've got a dilated left atrium they're more at risk of getting of being detected with AF the real question then is if you detect AF, does anticoagulation reduce your risk of a recurrent stroke? And that has yet to be proved, um, but uh, one would think from the other trials of anticoagulation in people with atrial fibrillation, there would be a benefit. Um, so that was actually the rationale that underpinned the Navigate ESAS trial and the RESPECT ESAS trial of comparing standard thromboprophylaxis in these people with aspirin therapy compared to the um, experimental drug of being one of the new anticoagulants. The Navigate ESAS compared rivaroxaban 15 milligrams per day with aspirin and the RESPECT ESAS trial compared to Bigatran with aspirin. Unfortunately, both trials were stopped pretty early Navigate ESAS was stopped early after 11 months because there was too much bleeding with rivaroxaban. And so um, the data monitoring committees said it was too unsafe, but the follow-up was only 11 months and the ischemic events were pretty similar. So the RESPECT ESAS trial was still recruiting at that time, but they still stopped their trial after about one and a half years of follow-up. And the curves for dibigatran and aspirin were identical for recurrent ischemic stroke up to about 12 months, and then they started to diverge, and there tended to be a reduction in ischemic events with dibigatran. But it was stopped a bit early and didn't have enough power to show a significant benefit. But there's a general belief that some of these ESAS people are occult AF, and they probably declare themselves over time, and probably anticoagulation in the long term will be better for them. Um, but it actually hasn't been proven, and most of them are probably non-stenotic atheroma or something else like antiphospholipid. So I think the message here is, yeah, I'd get a more prolonged monitor on her, but I'm, I don't, I'd look at the echo first. If the toe is completely normal, the transesophageal echo on the atrium is plumb normal, 
and the ECG in Holter is still normal, you'd think the probability of this being atrial fibrillation is low. Because as you all know, the most common causes of atrial fibrillation are hypertensive heart disease, so there's diastolic dysfunction, ischemic heart disease, which she doesn't seem to look like she's got, valvular heart disease that she doesn't look like she's got, or thyrotoxicosis, so you check that. But I'm thinking the pretest probability of this lady having atrial fibrillation is pretty low. So I'd still be searching for other causes and I wouldn't be rushing into anticoagulation. But I'd be happy to monitor longer. So we don't think anticoagulation is going to be appropriate for this lady, but what else can we use for secondary prevention? Well, that's another good thing is, um, I mean, at the moment you're thinking this is probably arterial and... Um, or is it? But you, the standard would be antiplatelet therapy with aspirin. I mean, in the longer term, clopidogrel has been compared to aspirin and it's marginally better. In the Capri trial, there was a reduction in major events from 5.8% per year with aspirin to 5.3% with clopidogrel. Aspirin and dipyridamol is another option in the trials. Um, aspirin and dipyridamol had about an 18% relative risk reduction compared to aspirin. And therefore, that led to the PROFESS trial because Boehringer thought that an 18% reduction of aspirin and dipyridamol compared to aspirin would be better than clopidogrel, 9% reduction compared to aspirin. And so they randomised 20,000 patients with ischemic stroke to long-term aspirin and dipyridamol versus clopidogrel and showed in a dead heat exactly the same. So it's just like comparing football teams. You can't compare our football teams uh, compared to a, um, another comparative, you've got to have them play each other in a head-to-head -head grand final. And so clopidogrel and aspirin dipyridamol are very equivocal. Um, and dual antiplatelet therapy in the longer term seems to just cause too much bleeding. We did the Charisma trial back in 2006 and randomised several thousand stroke patients and other vascular disease to long-term C plus A versus aspirin and there was no benefit, and the MATCH trial showed no benefit of long-term clopidogrel and aspirin compared to clopidogrel because of the long-term risk of bleeding. So it's really trying to find a long-term agent that doesn't cause so much bleeding. So at the moment we've sort of got aspirin, but the COMPASS trial was published in 25,000 people with atherosclerotic disease, um, mainly coronary disease and peripheral arterial disease. Was ran These patients were randomised to aspirin, as you'd expect, or low-dose rivaroxaban plus aspirin. So not 20 milligrams a day of rivaroxaban, the NOAC, which we use for clots in the left atrium and stasis like um, DVT or AFib, but low dose, 2.5 BD, an anticoagulant plus aspirin. And there was a significant benefit with low dose anticoagulation in rivaroxaban, 2.5 BD, added to aspirin compared to aspirin alone. And interestingly, the curves didn't start to diverge for, for after a year or so. So that's made people think maybe these people should be on a low dose NOAC plus aspirin. And that's what I'd be thinking about in her, but the trouble is we haven't got a trial to support that. But maybe that, and because the low dose NOAC might have much less bleeding and, um, than the bigger doses, yet add a little bit of anticoagulation. So that's another thought. And then, um, of course, if she was diabetic, we're tending to use these glucagon 1 peptide receptor antagonists. And, um, uh, and the, the other interest is now we all know that atheroma is an inflammatory disease. Maybe these someone like this lady, if she does have atheroma, um, maybe needs some anti-inflammatory therapy as well as 
risk factor control, which he doesn't have too many risk factors, and perhaps antithrombotics in the form of antiplatelets plus or minus low-dose anticoagulation. But these are sort of experimental treatments that I've mentioned latterly at the moment. Just keep it simple. Aspirin, no smoking, LDL down to as low as you can get, you know, tolerate, and blood pressure as low as you can tolerate. Great. And what, what's interesting here is that um, in Australia, aspirin is um, is used, but in the UK, we um, quite often switch these people to clopidogrel. They're probably equivocal. Yeah, because when I was in the UK back in 1989 and 90 and 91, um, clopidogrel, um, the Capri trial, wasn't done then but it came out in 96 and after that Australia and other countries took up clopidogrel but the UK didn't because of its cost and now there's a paradox the UK have really embraced clopidogrel but we tend to just use aspirin more here I've just got one last question before we finish. Um, uh, sometimes uh, patients end up on dual antiplatelets uh, for a few weeks. Um, what, can you explain what that that's, is about? Yeah, well, the reason for dual antiplatelets... Well, let's just go back. In, in When someone has an acute ischemic stroke or a TIA, and if it's atherosclerotic, the risk of a recurrence is very high early and then it tails off. So atheroma, as we said, is an inflammatory condition. It's a bit like volcanoes. They lie, atherosclerotic plaques lie around dormant for a long time. And we often have quite a prevalence or burden of atherosclerotic plaques in our, in our old bodies like mine. But then something makes them inflamed. So we know how to prevent them forming is to lower blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes and smoking and stuff and just not age. But once you've got plaques, we don't know what makes them rupture. And um, we think it's inflammation. We think you're exposed to an endogenous or exogenous antigen that gets into the plaque, leads to inflammation, production of matrix metalloproteinases, the shoulder of the plaque gets weak, the smooth muscle gets weak, and the plaque ruptures or erodes or hemorrhages into it. And then you get blood getting into the plaque thinking you've cut yourself, so it forms a clot and then the clot often occludes the artery or more commonly actually dis embolizes distally. And so when you've got that situation of an acute hot ruptured plaque, it tends to go off again, just like volcanoes do. It's hot now and it'll keep rupturing. So the risk of a recurrent stroke is about 5% uh, in the next two days and it's about 10% in the next week and it's about 15% at a month and then it, it tails off to about 5% a year. So it's, a, it's an emergency, a TIA and a, and a mild ischemic stroke is as much an emergency and need to come to hospital or be assessed as, as an acute stroke needing reperfusion with thrombolysis or any. So that's why you've got to get, even if it's a mild stroke and you're not going to thrombolyze them, if, or this sort of case, you've got to be alert to the possibility she could have another one tomorrow. And so the one treatment is to get rid of it by doing an urgent endarterectomy or stent. And Pete Rothwell's work with that showed the earlier you operate on, the better. There's a bit of uncertainty about risk versus benefits in the acute setting of the first day. But um, generally, the sooner you get that out, the better. But if you can't get it out, then you've got to try and quieten it down with dual antiplatelet therapy. You need all you can, because these are platelet-rich thrombi in an atherosclerotic plaque. So that's why we load them with aspirin and read Pete Wastrell's review in The Lancet in 2016 of the benefits of aspirin in the first few weeks. 
which is substantial looking at the IST trial and the CAST trial pulled together. But then adding clopidogrel to aspirin works as well. So if without um, any antiplatelet therapy, the risk of stroke we set at, at a month is about 15%. If you give them early aspirin, you reduce it substantially to about 9% at a month. If you add clopidogrel, you reduce it further to about 6.5%. But you do increase the risk of major bleeding by about 03 to 0.5%. So adding clopidogrel will save about 25 recurrent ischemic strokes from 9% to 6.5 at a month, but it might cause about 0.3 or 3 per thousand or 5 per thousand bleeds. So there's a net benefit of adding clopidogrel. And then we've just seen the TALES or T-H-A-L-E-S trial published in the New England Journal last month of ticagrelor added to aspirin. And so a loading dose of ticagrelor, 180 milligrams, followed by 90 milligrams a day for a month, was also more effective than aspirin alone. So ticagrelor plus aspirin is about as effective compared to aspirin as clopidogrel plus aspirin is. So that's another option. And so, and that might increasingly become an os- option because one of the problems with clopidogrel is that it's a pro-drug. Um, so just to go back, in the acute phase we treat with dual antiplatelet therapy for TIA and mild ischemic stroke for up to a month. In fact, most of the benefit is in the first week, first seven to ten days. So you really want to treat them for the first seven to ten days, if not for a month. And we're only talking about people with TIAs and mild ischemic stroke who don't have a big infarct to bleed into. These trials didn't include people with big infarcts in the brain that are more prone to hemorrhagic transformations. So we're not sure what to do with them. But people with no brain infarction or a small brain infarct, we add the extra antiplatelet agent. Clopidogrel, as we said, is a pro-drug. It, it needs to be converted in the liver to the active drug that then works on the P2Y12 receptor of the platelet to inhibit platelet activation. And about one in four of Caucasians and perhaps one in two Asians have a genetic polymorphism for the cytochrome P452C19 or other CYP um, polymorphisms that they can't metabolize the pro-drug of clopidogrel to the active drug. So they're so-called clopidogrel resistant. And so perhaps ticagrelor has a role for those people uh, because ticagrelor just directly hits the um, P2Y12 receptor, it, it, it works. It doesn't require um, metabolism or conversion to an active drug. And it's also reversible. So ticagrelor looks promising on paper, but the, the effects in the trial were actually no better than we saw in the CHANCE trial or the POINT trial of clopidogrel and aspirin. But we can't, as we have talked about before, look at indirect comparisons, how different regimes go against aspirin. We'd have to have a ticagrelor versus clopidogrel study. And there was one in the BMJ last year. The PRINCE study compared ticagrelor plus aspirin versus clopidogrel plus aspirin in the BMJ last year, but it looked mainly at platelet reactivity and and, um, suggest that ticagrelor might be good, but, um, but we need a bigger trial. Great. Thank you so much, Professor Hanke. That was really informative.
you for listening. And if you have any questions about this episode, please contact us at neuropodcases at gmail.com. Look out for future podcast episodes coming soon.